0: So I'm reading from 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.
1: About it a few times uh, over the last year or so, and it's been great uh, to be with you. We recently finished a sermon series in 1 Peter at Riverbank, and uh, I'd love to open up this great text with you today. Let's pray and then we'll look at it together. Lord God, we thank you that your word uh, is open in front of us now, that it is alive and active and ready to do its work again. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, empower us encourage us inspire us sanctify us so that we can go out into the world again this week ready to live for you and bring you the glory you deserve we pray this in jesus name amen i wonder if you've seen it on the news where like celebrity or a criminal or a politician they walk out of a building uh, and suddenly they are swarmed by the media and everyone tries to jostle them And there are insults being thrown, and people are yelling. And I always find it interesting to watch how people respond in that moment. Some of them, they hide under an umbrella or a coat, and they just make a beeline for the car, and they just want to get inside and get away from it and escape. Others seem to do almost the opposite. They get a bit riled up. Uh, They get aggressive. They go on the offensive. They might yell. They might lash out. Uh, And then there's those who are a bit more cool and collected and they might stop in front of a microphone and stare down the barrel of the camera and say what they want to say. I don't know if you realise but nowadays it's actually common for businesses and organisations to give media training uh, where they actually coach people on how you handle a situation like that. Because if you do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing in that moment, you could give your organisation a bad rep. And I suspect you'd agree that as Christians, we kind of need that help too. Because we live in a society that is becoming more and more anti-Christian. A society that doesn't say, oh wow, that's so great that you're a Christian. Now, a few generations ago, that might have been the case. Uh, Christians in society were often seen as the good guys. And then things started changing and, and Christians became... Uh, one of the guys, you know, if, if that's what you want to believe, that's, that's fine, good for you, you do you and I'll, I'll do me. But today things have changed again. Uh, in his book called Being the Bad Guys, Steve McAlpine argues that Christians today are now seen as the bad guys in society. We've actually become the problem Today, being a Christian can involve uh, being viewed with suspicion. You may be labeled as a bigot or a homophobe. uh, And increasingly, we find ourselves on the outs in our workplaces or in our schools. And so we need wisdom, don't we, in how we're gonna respond to this. We need practical training in how to live as Christians in a society like this. And that's exactly what Peter uh, is gonna talk to us about today. So as we come to our passage, uh, 2, one Peter chapter two verses eleven to twelve, we're we're kind of coming to a new section in the book of one Peter. We're coming to the heart of the book. Prior to this, Peter has been talking about our identity as Christians. Our identity is God's people. It's this amazing identity. We've been chosen by God. We've been born again in Jesus. We're heading for heaven. Uh, We're set apart for God. We're called to be his people, to be holy, to be his precious possession, uh, and to live right now for his glory. But now Peter is kind of going to shift gears and answer the question, well, how does our identity as God's people affect the way that we live in the world? Uh, It's as if we've spent the first part of 1 Peter uh, in a showroom, looking at a brand new four-wheel drive. Uh, and we've walked all around it, and we've looked under the hood, and we've, we've seen what powers it, and we've admired its gadgets and its features, and we all agree, yep, no, this is a ripper of a car. But now the question is, what happens when you drive it out of the showroom and you head off-road? Because as Christians, we don't live in a showroom, do we? We live off-road. We live in the wilderness. And Peter wants to prepare us for that. You can imagine this would have been a hugely important question for the first christians for peter's first readers they, they were following this this new religion christianity a strange new religion that had such different morals and ethics from the greek roman society around them for peter it was an incredibly important question to think about well how these how are these new christians these strange people going to be perceived what reputation will they have what will the newspapers say about them and is there some way that christians could live so that unbelievers might look at their strange lives and actually be attracted to them attracted to god peter is going to talk about that a lot in the rest of his book He's going to give lots of practical advice. But it all starts here in verses 11 and 12. Peter gives us the key, the central idea. Here it is in a nutshell. In a world of unbelievers who don't love God, Christians need to live really good lives. We need to live lives that look different but that are attractive. Lives that are weird and wonderful at the same time. How do we do that? Uh, Peter gives us three things in these verses. We're going to look at three things this morning. He gives us something to avoid. He gives us something to do. And he gives us something to aim for. Something to avoid. Something to do. Something to aim for. Let's look at each of these together. First of all, something to avoid. Verse 11, Peter Says this, dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Can can you hear the warmth and the urgency in Peter's voice? Dear friends, I I urge you. P- please, don't give in to your sinful desires. What are these sinful desires well they're all the the sinful passions that that live within us desires that are opposed to the new life that we have in christ remember we've been born into this amazing new life born again become god's chosen people but peter knows that does not mean that everything's going to be easy now christians still struggle every day with these sinful desires There's a tug of war that goes on in the Christian life, isn't there? Our sins have been forgiven. We've been freed from the enslaving power of sin. But we still struggle with our sinful nature. God is calling us one way. And our sinful desires are dragging us back the other way. God says, you're foreigners and exiles in the world now. You don't belong here because I've... I've redeemed you and our sinful desires say oh but this world's not so bad is it i mean a little bit of sin isn't so bad is it don't don't we feel that paul all the time do you feel that the pull to just settle down in the world i'm not saying to necessarily become wickedly evil <laughs> but just to stop being foreigners Wouldn't that be nice? Just to fit in. Just to get comfy here. And Peter says, don't be fooled. He says, those desires, they're actually waging war against your souls. War is strong language. This is, well, we we know this when we look at Ukraine, don't we? It's the language of army commanders planning and scheming. It's the language of troops armed to the teeth, lining up in formation, trained and determined to destroy you. Christians, we, we are at war. We are not at war with the unbelievers around us. We are at war with our own sinful natures and the temptations of the devil. What types of desires might these be? Well, of course, it includes big-ticket items, like sexual immorality, greed. But it also includes those desires that are more subtle, and and therefore more dangerous. Desires that, as Christians, we like to get comfortable with. Jerry Bridges would call them respectable sins. Things like selfishness. Things like pride. Pride wanting to be liked, to be the centre of attention, to be important, to be noticed. It might be a tendency to be unthankful, to be discontent, to be bitter. It might be frustration, being irritable, easily annoyed. It might be lacking self-control and indulging yourself. It might be being judgmental of others, being envious or jealous we, we all have these sinful desires that war in us they pull us away from God they stop us from resembling him they make us ugly Christians they make us useless Christians who give a bad witness to the watching world now I know that one of your key goals here at Olverston is to be serious about outreach and evangelism, to reach the lost here, to be a light for Jesus. But if, if that's our goal, then we need to hear what Peter says, "Dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. It's not enough to read a book on evangelism and learn a bit more how to talk about Jesus. If we want to reach olverston with the gospel we need to take a good hard look at ourselves at the sin in our own hearts the godless habits that we've made peace with because if we aren't people who have been humbled and broken by the sin in our lives if we aren't amazed at the grace of god to us how are we ever going to be compassionate and loving to the people around us do you see how that is connected So Peter says, fight these sinful desires, deprive them of oxygen, or or they will grow and they'll ruin your witness as a Christian. Okay, that's where Peter starts. But he doesn't leave it there because the Christian life is not just a list of don'ts, don't, don't, don't. No, the the life we live for God is a life of, of beauty, isn't it? It's a life of doing things well, of pursuing excellence And so after giving us something to avoid, Peter now goes on to give us something to do. It's there in verse 12. Something to do. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Where are we living? Have a look. Peter says, we're living among the pagans, among unbelievers. This is important because Peter has just said in verse 9, we're God's chosen people and we've been set apart for him. But now Peter makes it very clear that does not mean that we retreat or withdraw from society. We don't live separately in monasteries or caves or rural communes. No, we are called to live out our faith in public for the whole world to see." How do we do that? Peter says, let your life be really noticeably good. As much as possible, without compromising your faith, live in such a way that an unbeliever would see your life and think, wow, I like that. That, That's a good life. That person's got something. There's a hope and a peace and a joy and and a love there that, wow, that's a really good way to live. That's unusually good. How do we live like that? You could argue we talk about that almost every week in church, don't we? Peter's going to go on in this letter to talk about being law-abiding citizens and good employees and loving husbands and wives. But today I'd like to share a different example with you of what this good life looks like. And it comes from some of the very first Christians. Remember we said before, Christianity, it was emerging out of Judaism as this new religion, and it got a lot of people talking. Because it was spreading through the Roman Empire like wildfire, despite persecution. And there's this old document, it's called the uh, Epistle to Diognetus, and it's probably written very early, maybe something like 130 A.D., And it tries to explain who these strange Christians are. Uh, We're going to read a bit of it now. Uh, As we go slowly through it, let's take this chance to compare ourselves to the first Christians. I'll start reading. The Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe, for they in neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. In other words, they're pretty much like everyone else in terms of where they live and what they, how they talk and all of that. But, next slide, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities... And following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Okay, so they live with everyone else. Their customs are pretty normal in most things. And yet at the same time, they've got this wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. we go on. They dwell in their own countries but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. Next slide. They marry, as do all others. They beget children but they do not destroy their offspring. That's talking about how they value human life. Next slide. They have a common table, but not a common bed. How good is that? Generous in hospitality and stingy with who you share your body with. Next slide. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. That's powerful. You obey the prescribed laws, but then you go above and beyond the law in how you choose to live. Uh, next slide. They, they love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. Next slide. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice, as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Isn't that an inspiring example? Uh, that, that is what Peter's calling us to do. How amazing that maybe only 50 to 80 years after the Christians received Peter's letter, this was their reputation. They, they got it, didn't they? Peter's asking us, do we look different? Good, different. Uh, in, in the way that we suffer. In the way that you work for your boss or, or treat your employees. In the way we spend our time, use technology spend our money in the way that we date and get married, in the way we raise our kids, in the way we throw parties, in the way we spend our weekends, in the way that we forgive. So Peter, so far, he's called us to avoid sinful desires and to live extremely good lives. But why? What is the aim of living like this? That's the last thing we're going to look at this morning. Peter gives us something to aim for. Something to aim for is there in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you notice the tension here? They're accusing us of wrongdoing, and yet they're seeing and appreciating our good deeds. How does, how does that fit together? I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but, but I imagine this person who, who's generally anti-Christian, um, they're opposed to the Bible's teaching on things like hell, uh, on same-sex attraction, or gender, or abortion, This person doesn't really have much good to say about those bigoted Christians and and their hateful medieval religion. And then one day this person meets their neighbour or or their workmate or or a kid at school or that mum at playgroup. And they're stumped. They're confused. They can't figure out how this person could be so different and hold these dangerous views and yet they're so nice and they're so loving and they're so good. And friends, that's our aim. Our aim is to silence their accusations and win them to God. And it won't be easy. Notice, Peter, Peter knows they'll accuse us. They'll oppose us. They'll insult us. We should expect that. But Peter's saying, don't give them a leg to stand on. Make sure that their accusations are ungrounded. You know, when someone on Facebook accuses you of being hateful, don't prove their point for them. Surprise them with your compassion and gentleness and kindness. I'm not saying that we won't ever be offensive. Sometimes we have to be. Peter tells us in the passage just before this that People stumble over Jesus, over the gospel. Sometimes the truth will offend. It, it has to. Peter's not saying lie down and never cause offense. He's not saying we shouldn't have a voice in the public sphere. He's not saying we should privatize our beliefs and never speak about them. He's not saying that. But he wants us to ask a very important question What is our goal? In the way I live as a Christian, in the way I interact with unbelievers, what's my goal? What am I trying to achieve? See, Peter's answer is there in verse 12. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our primary goal is not defending our rights. Our primary goal is not making sure that Christians in Australia are never persecuted or mistreated. Our primary goal is not to make people more moral or to win them to our political view or draw them into our denomination. No, our primary goal is that they would be saved, that they would see a glimpse of Jesus in the way that we live and that that would lead them to God and that on judgment they they will not be sent to hell, but they will stand firm, dressed in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. That's our mission. That's why no Christian should walk out of their door in the morning aimlessly. Look look back a couple of sentences to verse 9 says, God has made us his precious people so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is our calling. This is our purpose. It's our mission. And it's our mission because it was also the mission of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to earth to make the Father known. He lived such a good life that though people accused him of wrong, they couldn't deny that he was the most astonishingly good and righteous person that ever met. This remarkable goodness, it characterized his life and it characterized his death as he sacrificed himself on the cross so that pagans like me and you could be saved and and would glorify God on the day he visits us. So, So let me ask you, As you go out into the week, what's your aim? As God's people, I hope our ultimate aim will be to show people a glimpse of Jesus, to point to him and how we live, to make him attractive, to draw attention to him. And then whenever possible, we need to not just do good things, but use our words. We need to say it's not it's not me. It's all it's all because of Jesus. I'm not I'm not actually a good person, and I'm certainly not just trying to earn my way into heaven. It's it's because even though I'm a sinner, Jesus has forgiven me and and he's helping me live this new life. I, I love Peter's optimism in this passage. You know, in the midst of this hostile society. He has no doubt that God will save people. We, we ought to live with that expectation. Not with despair. Not moping around thinking, oh, I don't think anyone wants to buy what I'm selling. Peter wants us to realize we really do have the light. We have hope. We have truth. We have something that our world needs, that it's longing for, even if it doesn't know that it's looking for it. He wants us to go out of here with a pep in our step. morning believing that we really have a life worth living and we really will have an impact on the world as we live it Uh, i'll finish with this i recently read the testimony of a man called douglas o'donnell and this is what he wrote it was the summer of 1990 i had just graduated from high school and I was selected to play basketball in the Prairie State Games, which is kind of an Olympics for Illinois. Most of the guys on the team were typical guys. We swore a lot, talked disrespectfully and immorally about girls, and as superstar athletes, were full of ourselves. But one guy on the team was noticeably different. His name was Mark Davidson. Mark never swore on or off the court. He only talked and acted respectfully toward girls. He treated everyone on the team, even the water boy with dignity and kindness. And he was humble, even though he was the best player on the team. In fact, he was voted the best player in the state of Illinois. Mark was a Christian. I knew this by the Bible. He kept next to his dorm room bed and from the openness of his conversation, but also and most importantly by his godly behaviour and good works. I became a Christian about a year and a half after tasting the salt and seeing the light of Mark Davidson. His behaviour made it clear to me, as it settled during those months upon my conscience, what it meant to follow Jesus. Well, I hope and pray that this will happen through us too that through the way we live as Christians, people will see a glimpse of Jesus, they'll be saved by him, and they'll glorify God on the day he returns. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the amazing life that you've called us to. A life, Lord, that we can live for you. A life filled with your spirit transforming us to be more loving, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be people who abstain from sinful desires and are committed to you. People with hope, with peace, with love that, that the world around us simply cannot find on their own. Father, I pray for Olverston Christian Reformed Church that you would make this church a beacon of light. That the Christians here would live such good lives that though they're accused of doing wrong unbelievers might see their good deeds and glorify you pray Lord that you would forgive us for all the times that we, we don't do a good job of us I thank you that you <coughs> draw us back week after week you pick us up you wash us clean and you send us back out again and again Thank you for Jesus, our Saviour, the great shining light, the great example. We pray that we might be able to point to him again this week, tell others about him, that we might be able to make him known to the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.